to episode 360 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I am here with Jessica Carr and Emily Kubankanik. In today's episode, we'll be talking about movies that we saw this week in part one, and in part two, we will be continuing our Young Critics Watch Old Movie series with 1934's It Happened One Night. Um, and we're going to dispel all the Hollywood myths, like, is Clark Gable the inspiration for Bugs Bunny? I don't know. This episode brought to you by Space Jam 2, A New Legacy. <laughs> oh, why'd you do that? <laughs> I don't know. Um, head over to Cinematary.com. We got some new reviews. If you've been uh, watching Netflix, you probably have watched Bo Burnham's Inside. We have a review of that. We also have a, re- a review of new release, All Light Everywhere by Theo Anthony. And then we have a review by Miss Jessica Carr of Pig by Michael Sarnoski, which Jessica, tell us a little bit about that movie and then direct people to the website. That's right. So Pig is uh, Michael Sarnoski's first feature. He also did a short about a woman who gets killed by a clown. So that was like weird research that I did before I watched this movie. Um, But Neon gave me a screener for this, which was very cool. Like when I saw the trailer for it, I was like, okay, you're telling me that Nicolas Cage is a man who lives in the wilderness and he has a truffle pig and they spend all their time together and they love each other. Like, I'm sold. And then the rest of the trailer was like, okay, someone steals his pig from him. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, I have to figure out what happens. And I think it's really interesting because the trailer of the movie, like, I think the marketing really wants to make it look like it's another one of those, like, John Wick movies where it's like this guy's um, precious, like, animal gets stolen from him and now he's, like, going to take revenge. And it, it, like, has some thematic, like, elements in common with John Wick, but it, like, that's not really really what the movie is like trying to do it's not really an action film I think uh, it's it's cool because like when you're watching it you kind of expect for it to kind of twist in the middle of the film where you're like okay he's about to start kicking some ass and the movie like kind of wants to do something else so you find out that Nicolas Cage's character is a former chef in Portland and he has this huge reputation for his cooking and he's like renowned like everywhere but for some reason he leaves that behind and retreat retreats into the woods um, with his pig and just lives his life out there until they steal his pig and so he has to go back into Portland and find all of these people that he had old connections with so that he can figure out who stole his pig um, they cooked him to death and then he cooks them no, to death. Like cook Instead of John death. Wick killing them with no. like a gun, he, t- he like cooks them and he's like, you're a souffle now. No. no. But that, and that is like actually, so like I, I talk a lot. My review is spoiler free. So if you want to watch the movie, then you can definitely read the entire thing. I wanted to make sure that people could like go and watch the movie. But it's like there are lots of foodie type of moments in the movie. Like they talk, they show him making like a handmade 
uh, mushroom tart whenever he is in the cabin alone by himself and the but the way that they shoot the food is kind of like the opposite of food porn there they the camera is like out of focus from it and you're very distant from like the actual process of them making the food and it was like kind of weird like it was weird that that was the approach they took to it but it was it kind of shows that it doesn't really mean the same to him that it used to and the movie kind of delves into why and it's a really like good film about grief and how you can have connections to these things but whenever the people that are connecting you to them are gone like how do you still love them the same and um yeah it's just it's a really really good movie I don't think that people are going to be um expecting like what it ends up doing and perhaps they will be disappointed if they're looking for like a John Wick action type of movie but I really liked it so my review is up on Cinematary right now you can check that out and then I think that Pig is going to be shown in theaters I think that they're um distributing it to different theaters so it's it's not going to be like a vod thing i don't think so i got an email from the bell court that they were showing it and that's in nashville but i don't know so like maybe some like art house theaters are going to get it nice well yeah so if you would like to watch nicholas cage find his truffle pig read about it well first read about it from jessica's review and then go check it out this weekend nice um but you also caught a pair of other new releases, which are now on Netflix. Yeah, so uh, Andrew talked about this last week, but he saw the first Fear Street movie, and it's Fear Street Part 1, 1994. Um, I watched that one, and I also watched Fear Street Part 2, 1978. So they're doing it in a series of three on Netflix that they're releasing. Um, the first two are already out, and I think the last one is out on Friday. And Before it's... You, uh, what's the... Is, have, they, have you seen, like, why the reason is, like, they're starting in 1994 and, like, going back? Yeah, so it's it has to do with um, what is going on in the plot of the film. So the teenagers that are in the movie, they live in this place called Shadyside, and, like, people just keep turning into killers and just massacring, like, people in the town, and they there's no explanation everyone keeps saying like these people are having psychotic breaks um but the movie like kind of gets into like okay there's a history of this happening in this town and it's happening for a reason and they're saying that it's because there's this witch who is like possessing people i don't think that that's a spoiler i think that you like figured that out I hopefully like most thing- i feel like most <laughs> things have a witch possessing things so yeah. yeah hopefully that's not a spoiler but maybe it was so my bad for people but i don't know so uh you figure out that they're so the movies are like going back in time and 1666 which is the last one that's coming out is the time period where the witch was like she existed or whatever and then she gets like hanged and they like tell the whole story of that and why the curse is a thing so um like I like I like the first two and I like the concept as a whole and I liked the first two but I wa- I wasn't in love with them and I think that 
Andrew kind of talked about this um, in the last episode when he talked about the first part, but they ha- they have like a very Netflix original e type of feel to them. The yeah. way that they look, like it, a lot of it, like the first one, everyone is going to compare to Stranger Things because it's like a group of teenagers who are trying to solve this thing, and they keep doing like like uh, throwbacks to like all these 90s songs and they're all these um, what's it called yeah. not uh, not mic drop what's the thing oh, where needle, needle drop. drop yes needle drop that's right there I, I saw the crazy one somebody was sharing on Twitter the one from the first movie where it's like three different needle drops in like 45 seconds yeah they and they do that I mean they still kind of do that in the second one too really where it reminded me of they don't do it like three times in a row I don't think but it reminds me of Stranger Things because they want you to be like okay this is the time period we're in isn't it so cool how retro it is and I think that uh, she is doing the same thing and it turns out that the director is actually married to one of the Duffer brothers who made Stranger Things Um, so there's that like weird scoop and when I heard that it wasn't Scoop, it was, nobody else know it <laughs> breaking news breaking right breaking here. news I'm sure people figured it out but like it it made a lot of sense to me because of like this even the second the second one they're like in a camp so they're trying to do like a camp horror movie and there are still parts of it that feel like Stranger Things to me with the way that it is like shot and the way that it looks and like the whole feel of it, which like I liked Stranger Things like the first couple of seasons. So there's not really anything wrong with that. But like that part of it was um, kind of weird. And I didn't I don't think that they look particularly good. Um, the last one looks really good, and so hopefully they kind of break the mold with what they did in the first two. But, like, I thought that the first one, the cast of characters, it has a lesbian romance in it, and I thought that the characters were much more bonded, and we got to know them. And then, like Andrew said, when they're kind of, like, hacked into bits, it's, like, very emotional. Um, and... I, like, I'm fine with that in a horror movie. I'm fine if we're, like, uh, if we, like, get to know the characters and then they get, like, murdered. Like, I don't, I don't I like think to it's, get like... to know them before they're hacked in the piece. <laughs> I mean, yeah, well, I mean, like, a lot of slasher movies, like, don't, they don't want you to do that. Like, yeah. they want you to be distant. And they're, like, like Andrew said, like, these are just a bunch of you know, like meat puppets just getting like hacked up or whatever and it's fine and fun. And I think the second one is like that. Like I think the second one approaches the movie like that. So it could be interesting in that she's approaching the movies with different horror styles and different ways to approach like the characters in the story because the the second one focuses on two sisters that like hate each other and there is a part in the movie that is supposed to be emotionally compelling but it didn't land for me at all because everybody in the second movie they're so mean to each other they're like like they spray paint this girl's cabin and they call her a bitch and they're like we hope you burn and die in hell and like they're just like everybody is so mean to each other in the second one and i'm like i'm like 
I, I never went to camp, so I'm like, were people really this mean to each other at camp? Because... I good also grief. get hacked to pieces in camp, so, you know. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, so, like, these people get... They get, you know, chopped up by an axe murderer, and I'm like, it's fine because they they all sucked, and I just didn't. <laughs> like, I, I was just like, okay, everybody is mean to each other. Everybody sucks, so I guess it's fine. But, like... In that regard, I liked the first one a tiny bit more than I liked the second one because I liked the compelling story with the characters and being invested in it. And then in the second one, it was kind of just like stylistically, I thought that it was cooler because it was like a camp slasher film. But on the other side, I did not think that it was as like emotionally compelling. So I'm really interested to see what they do in the third one. It looks like they're actually recasting like all of the characters that used in the first two to play people in the different time period. So that to me is like an interesting choice because it's all faces that we've already seen before, but they're playing different characters. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I'm interested to see like where it goes and I like that they split it up into three parts and even though they're movies, it feels like a series. Like it's something that you're able to like watch and then you look forward to watching the next one. And I wonder if that will like make other directors want to do something similar to that. Yeah. Like instead of, um, you know, the thing I think with the, with the stranger things comparison is like, they always talk about how they're like, it's not 10 episodes. It's a, 10 hour movie or you know some something stupid like that um and rather than just doing that why don't you just make you know three different movies that you know rather than trying to to fit a whole story into 10 episodes you can just make like a what hour and a half two hour movie yeah no that's cool i mean i i I would i would be more into that than listening to guys named the duffer brothers talking about 10 hour movies so i'm in for it or whatever this director's name her husband talking about 10 hour movies because scoop because it's the scoop (laughs) yeah leah her name is leah janiak if i said that right i do not know nice um well both of those are on netflix and like jessica said i guess the third one will be up on netflix by the time this episode launches so uh there you go Uh, jessica what did you do in between those movies by the way Okay, so this is dumb. This is dumb because if you've been listening to this podcast for a long time, I'm like, I like horror movies. I've gone to horror film festivals. We see you as, we see you as like a really tough person. So, I mean, this is breaking all of our, our image. You know, I like horror movies. I wrote the review for Raw for Cinematary. Like, I'm... I'm cool. I know about I know about scary movies. It's fine. But I still I cannot go to sleep if I watch a horror movie. Like I can't go to sleep immediately because my brain is thinking about all these people getting chopped up and all this blood and guts and stuff. And I don't want my brain to have that at the forefront when I'm trying to go to sleepy town. So what I do is I watch a a kid's movie that I know will make me feel better. And after I watched the first Fear Street movie, I watched Kung Fu Panda. I watched half of it, and then I went to sleep. And then I watched the second Fear Street movie, and then I watched the other half of Kung Fu Panda. And my review of Kung Fu Panda is that it still slaps and is very good. 
and Jack Black is great as a little chubby panda who learns to love himself and to do kung fu. And do kung fu. So, there you go. Yeah, well, that's a perfect transition to another movie that features animals doing um, martial arts to a degree. There's monkeys that do martial arts. I don't know. Um, So I just watched recently Raya and the Last Dragon, which is directed by um, Don Hall and Carlos Lopez Estrada, who did the... I think Don Hall did the Winnie the Pooh, the recent Winnie the Pooh movie for Disney, and the two of them did that. Um, what's the super, Big Hero Six? Big Hero Six, yeah. Um, and this one, it came out. I think I can't remember if it was delayed or if it was supposed to come out this year. But anyway, it came out uh, earlier this year on Disney Plus, um, and stars uh kelly marie tran from star wars um aquafina uh daniel day kim benedict wong um patty harrison from uh i think you should leave i just want to you know point that out um but this one it's it takes place in this uh fantasy world where you know before humans and dragons live together in harmony but then uh humans decided to suck and so uh because the humans sucked the dragons had to like save them and sacrifice themselves and so there's no more dragons except for one that you know might be lost or whatever cue the last dragon um so then 500 years later you got raya and uh she's trying to uh bring all the different tribes together you have like you know everybody was all kumbaya and then they you know they became became assholes and so then the the dragon thing happened and everybody got separated and so her dad is like um is kind of like that camp counselor who's just like everybody get along let's all let's all have a dinner and get along so he like tries to do that doesn't go well um and they uh they break this like um i don't know some stupid stone thing and all the bad the bad things that were you know vanquished when the uh when the dragons disappeared come back and turn people into like stone and so then like they like all become these like stone people with like their hands like this this is good uh, audio they got like their hands like this um and so her dad turns <laughs> the stone and so because it's a disney movie and in a disney movie you cannot have any story happen and any growth happen without either taking a parent out or just killing them so because that's how growth happens in life um and so then raya is like on a quest she's like i'm gonna find the uh the last dragon um and she does the dragon is uh what is it sisu 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 uh it's voiced by aquafina and they team up to uh, get all the little little stone pieces together and pop them together and everybody's like you know sometimes we just got to get along and we just got to you know recognize or that we're just different people and all this other you know whatever um (laughs) just crap just kumbaya shit um so this is uh this this is in like disney animation studios it's fine um the, I, I saw uh, Michael wrote in his review on Letterboxd that he really th- thought like this was like probably the best um, 
iteration of like the post tangled, you know, uh, John Lasseter kind of influence of of Disney, you know, so Tangled and Frozen, those things, and it, and it is really kind of impressive in that in that regard. You know, it has a lot of um, it like in terms of like how they design the dragons and things like that. It is it is really impressive, but it also kind of to me just has like this video game cutscene feeling to it. It also like the characters themselves remind me a lot of. Um, the uh, those uh, the Star Wars animated shows that they have where they're kind of like blocky, um, and so I guess really the the takeaway for this is if you're really in the animation, the animation is 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 cool, but goddamn is the story in this like the like I. I I, they, like they had how many? Let me let me check. I, I swear to God, it was six. Yes, yeah, so they had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. They had eight screenwriters on this thing. I could have put a I could have put a log line into an AI machine and generated a more interesting like emotional beat story than this. Like, there's nothing wrong with like the the plot line that I gave you, but like the way it's executed is so like i almost halfway through was like offended because it was so offensive to people who like story like just basic storytelling <laughs> that they did this and they, they they kind of segment it in a very video game fashion so like you have all right so we have like four pieces of the stone that we got to get so we're gonna and it's in these four different places and so we're gonna go to this place and they have like a big you know, big, th- you know, big, uh, big, you know, title. And it's like, we're in this place. Um, and then they like do the whole set piece. And then they're like, we got to get the next stone. And then it's like, boom, this place. And then do the thing. Boom. It's just very like, le- like, it's almost like we're leveling. And they literally have like a, like a, like a concept of like leveling up because every time they get a new stone and put it into the, the one that they already have, um, Sisu, the, the dragon like gains a new power. Um, and so, to me, watching it, outside of the animation being fine and the story being honestly god-awful, um, it was kind of interesting to me that it, it, it kind of had that video game component to it. And so I would be curious to see how that relates to the targeted audience of this, not me. Um, because you, you think that, like, the you know kids and younger people who are seeing this um, are probably pretty engaged in like video games and video game culture, whether they're watching like esports or Twitch or just playing stuff like Fortnite or Call of Duty or things like that, where every everything is very, um, you know, delineated in that way. You know, you don't really have like a linear story. It's like you have kind of point beats that you have to, you know, quests that you have to complete. Um, and so it's unfortunate that like the story was so boring. But also to me, it's kind of fascinating because I wonder if this is not in, in terms of the story being boring, but I wonder if this like the way that they segment it into being like these kind of, you know, quest one, quest two, quest three, completion goal type things. I wonder if that's going to become more of a more of a way that like these types of movies are made just because that relates to that audience more. Um I don't know. I didn't. I didn't totally hate that. It kind of got. It gets tiring after a while because you know, at least in terms of how movies are structured, it kind of gets boring. Just going, all right. So we got, you know, 
goal one, goal two, goal three. Um, but in that respect, it was kind of interesting. So I don't know. I don't. I, I honestly kind of give or take this one. I really. I, I'm much more pro um, the movie that Michael and I talked about a couple weeks ago, the new Pixar movie Luca. I would recommend checking that one out if you haven't seen that. Um, but I don't know. It was kind. Of, I, that's that's mainly what I was left thinking about is how the video game how like i saw a tweet this is the last thing i'll say i saw this tweet recently where people were talking about like um how we always think like the discussion is like how uh movies are influencing television and how like those have similarities and somebody was like actually what like that's a like stupid conversation to have anymore like if anything the conversation now should be how are movies influencing video games and vice versa because i think that video games are such a prominent form of pop culture now more than they've ever been before and so i feel like those are probably going to start influencing influencing movies and in and you know video uh movies are going to be influencing video games and stuff like that so yeah. Interesting. The characters, the characters in this are supposed to be like Southeast Asian, right? Yes. So was there I, any like like cultural significance there? Like, did they try to do anything with that in the movie? Um, I guess. I mean, I think it's supposed to be kind of um, you know, paying homage to a lot of Southeast Asian mythology. Um in like that respect um i mean i think for the for the most part except for like i think alan tudyk has like a role as like this roly-poly guy because he's like the new like john ratzenberger for this disney for disney animation studios where they just like toss him in every movie for whatever reason um but the whole cast is southeast asian um and so yeah i don't know if there was any significance or if this is like based i mean i'm sure it's based off of probably a, a litany of myths um but i think that's kind of where where its influence comes more is that it's it's um it's based off of this mythology that eight people had to like decipher yeah it would just be nice if they would like make things that had more cultural significance because like i know I know, like, a lot of people when this movie was coming out, like, a lot of Southeast Asians were like, oh, yeah, like, representation. But if you're going to, like, if the story doesn't really mean anything and it's not really doing anything with it, then what's the point? It's almost like just ticking a box where you're like, oh, I'm making these characters different, but I'm not really, like, doing anything with it. Yeah, no, I mean, that's that's kind of what it's doing, because honestly, like, I, I, I like the idea of, like, the concept behind the story, like, the way it was set up. It just, the like, the emotional beats in terms of, like, the motivation, uh, the motivation of, the, of Raya, the main character, is pretty obvious, but they have, like, this kind of subplot with the, like, they kind of have, like, this in-between villain where she's, like, you know, is she good, is she bad, um, with one of the other... Um, one of the other factions and um i don't know like she's just not she's very underdeveloped um like she's supposed to kind of have like this faux friendship thing going on with the main character and then also kind of have like this difficult relationship with her mom but it never like lets any of that develop it just kind of like puts swords in her hands and makes her like fight um and so i don't know it, it kind of to me it kind of like half asses what you're describing it kind of just goes like oh well it's just like like we're gonna like make an attempt at it but not really actively like try to create something that's meaningful that's basically all 
the Disney stuff that has been coming out lately where I'm like, I I know what you're trying to do, but it's like not landing in any yeah. way. So you know, and then and then you also kind of have like I saw the trailer for the new Pixar movie, which is directed by the director of that Bow, the short film, the Dumpling movie, um, that has like a like a, I think an Asian protagonist and like the director's Asian and like I think that like like Pixar makes a little bit more of an attempt to like kind of do that, um, while Disney, like I said, the you got like a white guy and another guy directing this. So, I don't think with any relation to Southeast Asian culture. So, well, thanks and a lot, eight, Disney. And eight, eight people, like I, I just I want people to watch it to see how bad the story is and go eight people, and then you go, oh well, eight people wrote it. Of course, it's terrible. It's a bunch of, you got like eight people trying to make this thing. It's awful. Um, so yeah, Ryan, the Last Dragon. It's on Disney Plus. Um, Emily, you're going to take us home and hopefully you're going to describe a much more fun movie than I just described. <laughs> uh, I thought it was pretty fun. I watched Snake Eyes, which is from 1998, I believe. Let me make sure. Um, but it's a Brian De Palma movie. Yeah, 1998. Um, with Nicolas Cage as the like supposedly sole good cop in this Atlantic City area and there's this boxing fight and he is going to it and he's in this building but it's going to be turned into a casino soon I don't know there's a lot of like moving parts with it but someone is assassinated and so Nicolas Cage is trying to figure out who did it and um, it's one of those action movies that ends up turning into camp which is really fun to me especially with Nicolas Cage it's like moments that are not supposed to be funny but they are very funny um but I think Brian De Palma does a good job of that we replay the same moment um like from different perspectives throughout the movie which was pretty cool it got a little old by the end but um it was an interesting way to tell the story. Um, it's a fun movie to watch that isn't too serious. It, it's interesting. I, I, you know, we have a nice little bookend, I guess, of Nicolas Cage movies. But and it, <laughs> and Jessica, I'll be curious to kind of hear what he's like. You mentioned him a little bit, but what he's like in Pig, because um, the way you describe him in this movie, Emily, you know, he kind of has that now where it's... I feel like there's some movies specifically that... Um, what was the the Lovecraft movie um, where it's kind of like they stick him in there, like, and it's more like let's. It's, it's he's not really a character other than just like just be like weirdo Nicolas Cage without like designing an actual character, and then you have something like Mandy, which also seems like very like geared to that. And so I'm curious, like, um, does he seem like? Does he? I guess my question is, does he seem like he's acting in Snake Eyes, or does he seem like he's kind of doing his? I'm Nicolas Cage, woo, like his bit. Um, especially for the first, like, 30 minutes, it's very, I'm Nicolas Cage. He's, like, walking through the arena and, like, being boisterous, to, and he knows everyone, so he's, like, really super silly. Um, but I think there are definitely points towards the end that he kind of reverts into the 
typical like copy trope, which I nor- normally associate with Nicolas Cage. So it was interesting, I guess, to see him in that way. Yeah. Jessica, is, is he is he uh, doing a Nicolas Cage bit or is he actually acting in Pig? Oh, he's actually acting. And I, I hadn't seen him do something like so somber um, in a really long time. Like he is playing someone who is in a lot of pain um, and just seems like he's like boiling underneath the surface, but not in a crazy way, in like a sad like there's some bad shit that has happened to this guy kind of way and it's really yeah like he does a great job because he is not like he's not dialing it up like at all like he's like very toned down very responsive to like the other characters in the film and isn't trying to like be the spotlight like in any way which is really interesting Nice. Well, because I, I, you know, you you watch uh, stuff of his, and he's really good when he's acting. You know, like you know, Raising Arizona, like he's fantastic. Um, But then I feel like there's some stuff now where they kind of put, they literally cast him as like a Nicolas Cage caricature. Like I know, um, what is it? I've heard that about like the Sion Sono movie that he's in, um, where it's just kind of like he's just doing a, you know, doing a bit. So, hmm. Um, well, Snake Eyes streaming anywhere or, or where you can watch it? Uh, I watched it on HBO Max, I think. All right. Yeah. It's Snake Eyes by De Palma. It's not the G.I. Joe movie. No, which I didn't know was a thing until we talked about this. <laughs> honestly, honestly, like they should put Nicolas Cage as the character in G.I. Mm. Joe. That would be kind of fun. <laughs> It'd probably make it more interesting than that movie looks. So, <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break, and then we will be back talking It Happened One Night after this. Hello, Cinematary listeners. This is your favorite Filipino podcaster, Jessica Carr. I'm here to let you know about a couple of things that Cinematary offers that you might not know about. First, if you're a fan of what Cinematary is doing, please consider joining us on Patreon. Remember when we weren't clamoring for your dollars? Well, now we're just clamoring for five of your dollars. So please help us and donate to our Patreon, and then you'll get exclusive content from our staff, including our film theory and chill series where a panel takes a piece of theory each month and deconstructs it before diving into whatever topic is on their mind from the past week. The $5 each month is investment in the website and the podcast and it goes solely to paying our writers for the reviews each week so please consider doing it. It's only $5. If you missed an episode of Cinematary or a piece of writing we've had, you should consider signing up for our free newsletter. Each Sunday we send out a note with the latest podcast episode, piece of Patreon content and the last two reviews that we've written at cinematary.com it's perfect for those of you who are interested in what's happening and it makes sure that you don't miss a single cinematary review finally the easiest thing that you can do to help us is to please please give us a rating and review on itunes spotify or whatever else you're using to listen to the show this helps us get more eyeballs and ears on the podcast and the website and it helps the people know about Cinematary, which is really what we're here for. So to recap, consider donating to our Patreon, sign up for the free newsletter, and give us a rating or review. We would really appreciate if you could do these things. Thank you for listening, and now back to the show. 
I was happy, but now I'm forlorn. Like an old comb that is tattered and torn. Left in this wide world to weep and to mourn. Betrayed by a maiden, her king. Oh, this maid that I loved, he was handsome. And I tried all I knew how to please. But I never could please her one quarter so well as the men and the flying back with part two of episode 360 of Cinematary. In this part, we'll be continuing our Young Critics Watch Old Movies series with 1934's It Happened One Night. Directed by Frank Capra from a script by Robert Riskin, the film stars Clark Gable, Claudette Colbert, and Walter Connolly. Spoiled heiress Ellie Andrews impetuously marries the scheming King Wesley, leading her tycoon father to spirit her away on his yacht. After jumping ship, Ellie falls in with cynical newspaper reporter Peter Warren, who offers to help her reunite with her new husband in exchange for an exclusive story. But during their travels, the reporter finds himself falling for the feisty young heiress. Classified as a pre-code production, the film was among the last romantic comedies created before the MPPDA began rigidly enforcing the 1930 Motion Picture Production Code in July of 1934. Uh, the working title for this film was Night Bus, which is the name of the short story the film was based on, and it was 2F starred Robert Montgomery, who was Frank Capra's original choice for the part of Peter Warren. Montgomery was, was replaced by Clark Gable, who was borrowed from MGN, while Claudette Kilbert was borrowed from Paramount. In Capra's autobiography, he states that he variously sought Myrna Loy, uh, Margaret Sullivan, Miriam Hopkins, and Constance Bennett for the role of Ellie Andrews before selecting Colbert. Uh, Harry Cohen suggested Colbert, who initially turned down the role. Her first film, For the Love of Mike, in 1927, had been directed by Capra and was such a disaster that she vowed never to make another film with him. Later, she agreed to the role only if her salary was doubled to $50,000 and if her scenes were completed in four weeks so that she could take a planned vacation. According to Hollywood legend, Gable was lent to Columbia Pictures, then considered a minor studio as a punishment for refusing a role at his own studio. That tale has been partially refuted by more recent biographies. Uh, MGM did not have a project ready for Gable, and the studio was paying him his contracted salary of $2,000 per week, whether he worked or not. Louis B. Mayer sent him to Columbia for $2,500 per week, hence netting MGM $500 per week while he was gone. Capra, however, insisted that Gable was a reluctant participant in the film. Although he is uncredited on the film, Capra is given credit in many modern sources for co-authoring the scenario. In his autobiography, Capra credits his film Miles Connolly with suggesting that he rewrite the script to make the characters more sympathetic. Filming began in a tense atmosphere, as Gable and Colbert were dissatisfied with the quality of the script. However, Capra understood their dissatisfaction and let screenwriter Robert Riskin rewrite it. Colbert, however, continued her displeasure on the set. She also initially balked at pulling up her skirt to entice a passing driver to provide a ride, complaining that it was unladylike. Upon seeing the chorus girl who was brought in as her body double, an outraged Colbert told the director, quote, Get her out of here. I'll do it. That's not my leg. Through the filming, Capra claimed Colbert, quote, had many little tantrums motivated by her uh, antipathy towards me. However, quote, she was wonderful in the part. 
in an interview filmed for the 1975 feature Bugs Bunny Superstar with Warner Brothers animated director animation director Bob Clampett. He states that it that he based Bugs Bunny's characteristic carrot munching technique on the scene and it happened one night in which Gable chomps on a carrot. According to a New York Times article on how films can affect business, the scene in which Gable undresses and, uh, and reveals that he is not wearing an undershirt adversely uh, affected the sales of undershirts throughout the nation, but no other information has been located to confirm this. Uh, after filming was done, Colbert complained to her friend, quote, I just finished the worst picture in the world. Columbia appeared to have low expectations for the film and did not mount much of an advertising campaign to promote it. It Happened One Night was the first film, you know, in lieu to win Oscars in the five major categories, Best Picture, Direction, Screenplay, Actor, and Actress, and uh, Colbert was the first French-born actress to receive that honor. Uh, The other two films that have done that are One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and The Silence of the Lambs. In 1934, the New York Times said there are few serious moments in It Happened One Night, a screen feast which awaits visitors to the Radio City, and if there is a welter of improbable incidents, these hectic doings serve to to generate plenty of laughter. The pseudo-suspense is kept on the wing until a few seconds before the picture ends, but it is a foregone conclusion that the producers would never dare to have the characters acted by Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert separated when the curtain falls. And in 1934, Variety said, the film proves two things. A clean story can be funnier than a dirty one, and the best way to do a a bus story is to make them get out and walk. On that note, let's talk a little bit about It Happened One Night. Um, Emily, I'm going to start with you as our resident um, old movies favorite person. Favorite old movies person. Um, what, how, what, what is, uh, where does It Happened One Night rank for you? And um, what's, your, uh, I mean, what, what's your history with the film? I It's been one of my favorites for a while. I remember watching it... Um, they played it underneath the Brooklyn Bridge um, in like 2019 summer and hearing everyone else laugh at things that I like have found so enjoyable about the movie was just like the coolest experience ever. So um, it's it's been one that I just love. And every time I watch, I like feel like I find something different to laugh at. Um, and I just love that the two actors are amazing. Is this your uh, favorite Capra movie? Ooh, that's tough. Um, no, I feel like It's a Wonderful Life probably just because I, I watched that way more and I'm more of a Jimmy Stewart gal. I mean, I, I get that. He's much more charming. <laughs> <laughs> Jessica, uh, how, what do you make of uh, It Happened One Night? I really like it. Um, this is my second time watching it. I feel like it is like the OG romantic comedy. It has some of like the most classic things that make romantic comedies good, and that is two people that kind of hate each other, but it's like the sexual tension is like very awesome to watch through the course of the movie because you're like well, will they or won't they? And there's, like, this push and pull. And these characters, like, do it so well. And it is, like, crazy to me to see a movie that is, like, this old that can communicate that the way that, like, a modern romantic comedy could. But it's because they borrowed it from them. 
Um, and you see it a lot in romantic comedies now, but it's just not done as well. Like, it was almost like uh, capturing, like, lightning in a bottle. Which, like, from your description of them filming this, there was a lot of tension, like, on the set. And obviously, there were people who didn't like each other very much, but it kind of fueled the movie a little bit, which is crazy. And it is the reason why they got, like, the chemistry that they did. Yeah. And, I mean, to your point, like, that it that they're kind of... You have these people where they're kind of... they Like, the sexual tension is kind of simmering under the surface. I mean, you have the whole you know preface of this is pre-code you know the 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 hollywood production code is about to be like implemented and so you also have like the fact that they're doing that is less like um kind of like the beginning of a trope i mean it becomes kind of a trope but like it's less the beginning of a trope and more we have to kind of like slide a lot of these like innuendos through you know so that we don't get dinged for the code which i think kind of makes it much even more impressive because a lot of that is just because they're trying to work around the constraints of making a movie in 1934 yeah and he still gets to like slap her ass which is great <laughs> like that is like one of my favorite scenes is like the piggyback scene because <laughs> uh, they're just like having so much fun and there are lots of uh there are lots of parts in the movie where like Clark Gable is obviously a smooth talker, like his character Peter, everyone is kind of like hanging on his every word, like he's very charming, and Ellie is like a, she is a brat, essentially, and kind of a helpless baby, which he calls her at one point, and it's like the two of them really need each other in a weird way, um, but like I... I think a question that would come to a lot of people's mind is, like, he can be, like, pretty mean to her in the movie, right? Like, he tells her to shut up a lot, and also he... Calls her a brat. Yeah, he calls her a brat, (laughs) and so it's like, yeah, are we... I don't know, there are, like, lots of parts in this where I think I kind of keep going back and forth of, like are these guys good for each other or are they kind of a disaster because of how mean they can be to each other? But it's this formula that you see a lot in romantic comedies where it's like, it's like in a movie narrative, this is cool and great. And at the end, they end up together because of course that's how it's supposed to be. But then when you think of the aftermath, you're like, these people would murder each other and actually this is extremely unhealthy (laughs) so uh i don't know but besides that i still enjoy the movie and i try and i try not to think about that too much like while i'm watching it i think the other thing you know like watching it now and i i I like the movie a lot um but i mean for y'all watching it in 2021 um you know you mentioned that like the way he acts toward her and he slaps her ass and things like that. Um, do you all, does anything like stick out at you that kind of, I don't want to just be like, you know, what's problematic in this movie, but like, is there anything like that in terms of like the behavior and how, um, he acts toward her? I know just from reading like his letterbox review, Andrew talks a little bit about that and kind of how, 
you know you have um, Clark Gable acting that way, but but the way it kind of passes is that Claudette Colbert is never you know she's constantly like still in charge, like like she she kind of is able to handle him. And so, um, what did you all make of kind of that dynamic and whether or not it kind of draws a line or you know crosses a line? Um. Yeah. I mean, that's something that is sadly like in old movies a lot um especially i feel like that is clark gable's persona in a lot of his movies is he's gonna be an asshole to you but like in a way that you're still attracted to him somehow (laughs) um and but i i think that's really interesting thinking about how he does always cut her down to size but never to the point where she has no say like she never backs down to those kinds of things she always has something to reply back which i think always makes it feel less mean and more like combative on both ends um but i mean i know there's a line like she needs amanda hit her if once every day and or even if she doesn't deserve it or something like that which now is like oh yeah obviously like super cringy um but yeah yeah and like in general if you're when you're watching a movie from the 1930s you're like being a woman in this situation is shitty no matter how you slice it like her dad slaps her in the face <laughs> like while like he's like oh just just slaps her in the face and then there's a scene like after that where she's like well daddy i love you like like i i would never i would never hurt you i would never do anything to hurt you after he just like slapped her in the face casually there's also a really like they're very close together like you know oh like my right gosh, in the movie yes. and they're like talking really close i'm like yes. what the fuck is going on right awful. now that was awful i was like who t- who talks to their dad like that close? Oh, it was uncomfortable. But like in every situation, like whenever they're traveling, he is always the one that talks to people to arrange things. Like he is always talking to the innkeeper. He is always like talking to the person at the uh, like the the train conductor, or the bus person. Like he's always doing all of the talking and arranging because he has to say that they're married or else she can't do whatever she wants to do. Like, she can't just walk around and be a free woman. Like, he's like, oh, I'm married to her, so don't... Like, he tells the guy, like, oh, that's my wife. You can't talk to her like that. And then he's, like, immediately sorry for it. But, like, in any other situation, she just has no agency or power unless that she's married to this guy and he, like, she is his property and so you shouldn't talk to her like that. And that is, like, something that is hard not to notice now when you're watching, like, an older movie. And, but it doesn't, like, it doesn't take away from the movie to me because it's something that I think that you just have to accept when you're watching those films or else you're never going to enjoy, like, an older movie. Yeah. I think also compounds, like, um, her not having any agency is the fact that we're supposed to believe that she has no way of understanding the world the way it is because she's an heiress. Um, Like, she doesn't understand how to interact with everyday people. And so I think there is also an idea that she is above all of this and so she has to have Clark Gable's character speak for her or whatever. But at the same time, I think she learns so much 
about like America, especially I love that this was a depression era movie where they're kind of moving through America and seeing I think that's what Capra does so well is like everyday people. Even if I know that not everyone in America is like this, I like believe it for during his movies with his characters and stuff. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Like the, the scene on the bus, um, when they're all, when they're like singing, like they have the band that's kind of there and they're like singing is such a, like a very, it's such a wonderful scene where everybody's just like, kind of, I like how you, you have the, the different people, you have the sailor and then the businessman like stand up and like do the different lines in the song. Um, he, uh, Frank Capra's actually sings a, a part in that, I guess, which I had never noticed until I was listening to. Oh, see the third guy? Um, yeah. Oh yeah. 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 That's cool. Um, Mm-hmm. But like that's such a that's such a kind of like nice com- you know community scene you know that was that was something I was thinking about also is just like um, you know I've been doing a lot of travel th- like on airplanes recently and you're just kind of like packed in there but I can't even imagine like the like the type of travel that they're doing in this movie where they're like on the bus and then you like get it's like get off the bus yeah thirty minutes and then you got to get back on the bus. Um, and like the, there's a lot of there's so many scenes in different camps where you know you think of like the the part where Claudette Colbert is going to uh, take a shower, and she has that whole moment with the women in line there. Um, I I think to your point like that he he's able to kind of capture those little small, um, small not even like moments of like Americana but just like moments of like community that I think um, are kind of nice to see. Mm-hmm. Especially I mean when you think about what other people would be seeing now I, f- I don't know no one was doing that like him i feel like it was either very um stylized period pieces a lot of the time were about you know um not flappers but like kind of the um result of that in like the 30s in new york city like gene harlow-esque kind of characters and so seeing something very different from that and so well is like really resonating with people i'm sure yeah i mean the only the only uh, others i can kind of think of is i think preston sturgis gets that a little bit in like sullivan's travels like he's able to capture like different communities outside of that um outside of just los angeles and then i think I think Ford does it a little bit. Um, you know, he kind of has like those moments with characters that are kind of off the the star path that, you know, where he kind of lets, lets, um, lets other people kind of have a moment that I think are interesting. But I think you're, I think you're correct. Like Capra's um, really good at like allowing those, those kind of outside communities to kind of just have a moment and have a moment where they're, you know, like all of these, it's just, it's kind of more, resonating in what they mean rather than like poking fun or like trying to make a point like there's never really like i'm trying to make a point about it it's never yeah something like that um i going back to kind of the whole like how this kind of becomes a precursor for romantic comedies um you know watching it now do you feel like um and this kind of ties into what we're talking about but i mean do you feel like this is something that um, I, I know that it was on Hulu for a little while. It's in the Criterion Collection. But um, do you feel like this is something that could still play for, uh, you know, on like Netflix for 
the people you know people who are on Netflix kind of engaging with more modern romantic comedies? Do you feel like this is something that that modern audiences on Netflix could maybe um, respond to, even though it's from 1934? Um, I I I am optimistic with that because I love it, and also I was really surprised when I do when I did see it with um, people who were coming to a free screening in the Brooklyn Bridge Park, like. Um, it was people of all ages that were laughing and enjoying it. And so I do think that it could reach those people if it is marketed in the right way. I think a lot of younger people maybe who um, are into Netflix romantic comedies might not give it a chance if it's presented in a, in a classic kind of way. Um, so I think it would be useful for people who love those kinds of movies what do you think jessica um my mean answer is that (laughs) i sometimes i look at the do you ever just look at the top 10 in the u.s thing on netflix and it's garbage like some of it is some of it is the dumbest stuff that I've ever seen in my life. And, like, for me to imagine a world where in the top ten would be, like, it happened one <laughs> night. <laughs> like, it's, like, Boss Baby 2 and then whatever that one, like, that one, like, dating show, Too Hot to Handle or whatever the fuck. <laughs> I thought you were going to describe the one where they were in, like, the, the, the costumes or whatever, the animal costume things. And then, yeah, and then somewhere down the line, it happened one night. That would be awesome. It would be nice. It would be nice to imagine a world where that would happen. Um, my nice answer is that I think that if you just sat people down in front of it, and they were people who were used to watching romantic comedies that they would probably take to it because i think that the i think that the characters are like really easy to latch onto and i think that immediately you understand what the movie is doing it doesn't take very long for you to kind of get thrown into that and into the like tension that is happening between them so i think that people would be receptive to it if they were just like sat down in front of it no, I agree with you because I think, um, you know, like Emily was saying, like if you frame it in the way of like it's a classic movie, like it kind of, uh, especially like a black and white classic movie, I think that that kind of, um, I think you, you know, the more general public would look at that and, and think that there's supposed to be um, like this level of not necessarily pretension, but like prestige to it. Like they were like, it was very important, you know? And so, and I think that that's why, that's why I asked this because I feel like this is one that could kind of pass, um, pass through because it is very light and breezy. You know, it's, it's, it's super funny. Um, it's just kind of them tossing lines back at each other. Like you, like you were talking about Jessica, it's a romantic comedy, but it's a very breezy movie. Um, and I think that, it kind of bucks that perception that like it's a black and white, you know, it's won a bunch of Oscars. Like it's this big, important and prestigious movie. And it's like, no, it's a super breezy, very fun rom-com. Um, and that's why I think, you know, if people gave it a chance, um, it would, ha- it would be able to play even though it's, it's, you know, an older film. And there, I mean, there's serious artistry to the level of like breeziness that, is there i think there's so much going on underneath the surface but as you're watching it you're not even thinking about that at all and so i think that is something that people 
would overlook not thinking that it would win Oscars because it really was like a surprise to everyone that it did win all these Oscars too. I was reading that um, that Claudette Colbert, it, it, you know, so she has all this like this thing sucks even before, and then it gets nominated for all the Oscars, and she still is like, I'm not gonna win, and so she was like on a train, and so they had to like pull her off a train because they're like, you won the freaking Oscar, like you got to come and like accept it, and um, and so it was just interesting, like read like just like the, um just how like dismissive they were like to the bitter end about this movie which is just kind of funny because um you know it's funny also to that point like it's such a breezy fun movie that won all these oscars you know it's 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 up against the only other movies that won you know five the the five major categories is one flew over the cuckoo's nest and silence of the lambs which are like deeply serious movies um it also just shows you like it's nice that like a movie like this won and like won the best picture and, and all the different oscars because um like again going back to like the modern rom-coms like do you can you see a modern comedy like that like sweeping all five categories at the oscars like no we gotta have like gary oldman dressed up as fucking winston <laughs> churchill <laughs> yeah <laughs> like I'm, I'm just imagining like uh, i'm trying to think of i would give pop star that's i would give that all the five major categories i'd give pop star it. <laughs> no jessica you wouldn't give pop star all the i don't know i've never seen it you've never seen know. pops okay we're going to do an episode no. on pop star now and jessica's gonna be on it that's just gonna happen young critics watch old movies future watch it's it's gonna be young it's gonna be young critics make jessica watch <laughs> pop star series and it's just it's one gonna week be, it's gonna be young critics dressed as old critics watch <laughs> young movies <laughs> So we're gonna dress up as old people and then watch the new movies. And then Jessica's gonna be like, "Back to you, Zach," and I'm gonna be like, "I have too much shit on. <laughs> I don't want to be around I'm like, anymore." When is? <laughs> I don't want to be. <laughs> when, like, when is this podcast just going to turn into "I think you should leave" podcast? I'm, I'm, where that's all I'm, we talk I'm about. I'm trying to make it like movies are dead. I think you should leave is is the future. <laughs> the end um speaking of, of clark gable a little bit um i mean you mentioned that you you enjoy him but uh i guess what what about him kind of makes him a nice i'm trying to think of like a like a like a it doesn't even have to be a modern like in the last few years but i'm like trying to think of like a, a kind of relatively modern comparison for uh, somebody like that unfortunately like in terms of like just kind of shooting out lines and being an asshole and you're supposed to like him the first person that kind of comes to mind is ryan reynolds and that's uh, kind of offensive to clark gable <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. uh, i guess but it i don't know it doesn't play it doesn't play as well with ryan reynolds i don't know there's something Tender. There's something tender about Clark Gable that he keeps getting mixed up with women who are kind of, like, messed up, like, rich women. Like, same thing with Gone with the Wind. Like, he keeps getting mixed up with heiresses and... But there's, like... He feels like he has to, like, put them in his place... Put them in their place, but there's, like, also a tenderness where he's, like, vulnerable 
and you can kind of see that in his face and it's like a moment for you the viewer where you're like wow this guy's like really kind of sweet underneath and i don't i don't really i can't think of anyone like i can't think of a modern like actor who can do that so well where it's like a vulnerability that is like underneath uh the performance i don't know i like I feel like it needs to be someone who is a little bit tougher on the exterior, but can be vulnerable at the same time. I don't know why I'm thinking of Michael Shannon, even though he's not really a romantic lead at all. But, like, (laughs) to me, I feel like deep down he's a big, huge softie. And I feel like that with Clark Gable, too. I'm going to say Tim Robinson again, bringing it back around. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh my goodness um, he can play no anything way. i want i want him to remake some old movies i think that would be so much fun um i think i think you make a good point on michael shannon though i would like to see michael shannon like in a traditional rom-com i feel like he could pull it off yeah oh my god he'd be so good i think he could do that he's hot in a weird way and so is clark gable i think he is because like it's funny that like you know that there is the whole allegation that like undershirts went at you know the the sales went down because of that because like that's such a like a weird i mean it's a striptease such a weird striptease scene where he's just like sitting there describing <laughs> himself taking off clothes <laughs> he's just like i did i take my tie off. i'm i'm really i'm really gonna stew on this one i feel like there has to be someone i don't know why i'm thinking about like guys in westerns for some reason he has that that aura even though a lot of his earlier movies weren't really westerns but yeah i see that for sure like hugh jackman maybe like wolverine hugh jackman where he's like kind of mean because he's like trying to push people away because he's like i can't die so don't get close to me and but he's like sweet underneath yeah i'm trying to think maybe I was going to say Joaquin Phoenix, but he's not really, like, tough. He's more just... He's hmm. he's more just kind of aloof. Yeah. Like, stoic. Yeah. Hmm. But... I, Maybe no one is like Clark Gable and will never have another one. Yeah. <laughs> I accept that. Did you guys know... Did you guys know that his, like, grandson was the host of that cheater show? <laughs> Every you got a lot of scoops. I know. Every time he introduced himself, he said his name was like something Gable. And then he'd look at the camera and he'd be like, that's right. My grandfather is Clark Gable. <laughs> you would do that. <laughs> I guess I would do I'd that. I'd probably do the yeah. same thing. Yeah. I guess he's like, he's far up in my family tree. So like to the point where I don't know if it's okay that I'm like, oh, uh, think he's really dreamy but far enough that i think it would be okay his name is clark james gable the third that's his that's his grandson and this is i don't know if they can see my screen that's what he looks like not as nice as uh, for the listeners not as no uh, he looks he almost looks like he's like like you hired a impersonator a clark gable impersonator like if if a, a weird kid had a birthday party, he was like, "I want a Clark Gable impersonator." That's the guy who'd That'd show be up. Me probably. 
I'd like a Clark Gable and a Jimmy Stewart <laughs> and Henry Fonda. That's yeah. I just want those impersonators at my birthday party. <laughs> um, any final thoughts on it happened one night before we wrap up? Um, I guess I, so. I was listening to the unspooled episode, and it made me realize that they never kiss in this movie, which. You never, I would have, as I think about it, I never think that because it just feels like the sexiest movie, like one of the sexiest movies ever. Um, super surprising. But it shows that, like, I think you they can do so much without actually showing any sex. And I think that's why people were able to do it, even as the code restricted people further after this. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of a you know a talked about point now, but I mean I think it, it is clever the whole like the walls of Jericho thing like that's such a kind of like clever conceit that goes on throughout the film and then like the payoff at the very end, um, it's, it's yeah it's good. <laughs> um, Jessica, any any final thoughts on it happened one night? Um, I would agree with Emily. I think less is more for sure when it comes to like the sensuality of this movie i think that both of the actors do an amazing job um if you have never seen a frank capra movie i think that you should watch this um i think it's a pretty good entry point and also if you just like romantic comedies and or clark gable then this is perfect for you (laughs) if you're if you're ordering a clark gable impersonator or watching cheaters you should watch this. <laughs> All right. Don't end on that. <laughs> um, no, I, I go back to my my point from before. Like, if you know, don't treat this like it's like some super important, prestigious, classical black and white movie. Like, it's a super fun, very lighthearted movie. Watch it. Um, give it a chance. All right. Well, this. I'll wrap up this episode of Cinematary. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary, on Twitter and Instagram at handle at cinematary, and on Letterboxd at letterboxd.com slash cinematary. We post all the movies that we talked about in this episode. Head over to patreon.com slash cinematary if you would like to watch us live um, as we record. Thank you to our patrons, Cam, Chet Newsom, Christina Daughtry, Corey Willingham, Harry Eskin, Candice Sisson, Ron Hayes, Titus Arthur, Tyler Chandler, and Whitney Rio Ross. Thank you so much for your patrons. Next week, we're going to be back with a special guest. We're going to be talking about 1931's Madkin in Uniform, and we're going to be joined by uh, film historian and filmmaker Jenny Olson to talk a little bit about the German film. So um, it's a good chat. We've already recorded it, so I would highly recommend coming back next week if you want to listen to a nice uh, nice chat on um, kind of like the history of queer cinema, because uh, this one's a good one. So... Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>